Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, or you can open that Bible app or grab a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, <clears throat> but join me, if you will, in Galatians chapter 1, as we continue on in our sermon series through Paul's letter to the Galatians, a letter that emphasizes the essential gospel, the things that we must believe about the most important aspect of our faith, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that God has acted in love in order to deliver fallen human beings from the bondage of sin into a right relationship with himself through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today, as we continue our journey through this letter, I want to talk a little bit about some personal reflections concerning the gospel. Now, these are not my personal reflections, although as what we're going to talk about here this morning over the years has caused me to reflect on my own life and the gospel, uh, what the gospel is really all about. But what we're looking at today are Paul's reflections of, on the gospel. As we've said, Paul's letter is, he, he writes this letter in order to defend the gospel, to clarify what the gospel is, the one true gospel, to these young Christians, these, this newly formed group of churches in the location of South Galatia. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we kicked off this sermon series and we looked at a map of where these churches were, but I just want to remind you of where they're located, and so um, we're going to put a map back on the screen again. This is a little bit different than the one we showed a couple of weeks ago, but the Apostle Paul, his home church, his sending church, is there on the far right side of the map. It's the church of Antioch, the one that is circled there in green. The uh, Jerusalem church was directly below Antioch, um, near the bottom of the map. Just to the left of Antioch is where these South Galatian churches are located. Circled there in red on the map, it's Pisidian Antioch, Iconum, uh, Lystra, and Derbe. Paul, he's the one that founded these churches along with Barnabas and initially John Mark, before John Mark left and went back home. And now Paul is writing to them to make sure that they understand that there is only one gospel. And in the passage that we're looking at today, we're going to find out from Paul, here is fundamentally what the gospel looks like. Now, if you're not familiar with Paul's letter to the Galatians, you need to understand that this letter is nicely divided up into three basic sections. And we have a graphic of this as well, but chapters 1 and 2 are what we call pers the personal section of the Apostle Paul. In fact, we have more autobiographical um, information about Paul in these first two chapters of Galatians than anywhere else in all of the Bible. Chapters 3 and 4 are primary, primarily theological, and they deal fundamentally with the subject of the gospel, and more, more particularly, what it is that we call justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And then chapters 5 and 6 are the practical sections. What is it that we do with all of this theology that we've just learned in the previous sections of Galatians? How do we apply this to our lives? And in true Paul fashion, he tells us how to do that in a very brief kind of way. But today... 
we kind of begin to make our way into this personal section of the book, uh, the letter to the Galatians. And we are confronted this week and over the next few weeks with some of the richest information about the Apostle Paul that he writes about himself anywhere in the Word of God. And our purpose, as we look at, as we look at a lot of this section, is not to so, so much try to have a history lesson or a biographical lesson on the Apostle Paul, although there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Our primary purpose is to uncover what Paul's personal experiences can actually teach us about the gospel itself. The gospel that he supported, the gospel that he proclaimed, the gospel that he defended and is defending right here to the Galatians throughout this letter. Now, we need to remember, just in case we forgot, that Paul's credibility is under attack as he writes this. There are some people, there are fellow believers, uh, people claiming to be fellow believers who are uh, pretty much trying to throw the Apostle Paul under the bus. They're trying to say that he is not a genuine apostle. In fact, these false teachers have infiltrated the region of South Galatia. They're coming in behind the Apostle Paul once he has left and are accusing him of being a second-rate apostle who is preaching a second-hand gospel. They're accusing him of being a renegade evangelist, somebody who has not actually been called by the Lord Jesus but who has been self-appointed to this role as an apostle. And he's just been trying to learn as much as he can, not from God, but from the real apostles who are down in Jerusalem. You know, he, he, he's, he got it all from them. All the information, all that he's teaching, that's what the false teachers are saying. He got the information all from them down there in Jerusalem, and now he's twisting it to suit his own personal agenda. Now, what's ironic about this whole thing is that that's exactly what the false teachers were doing themselves. They were the second-hand prophetic teachers who were preaching a second-rate gospel. And they were twisting it. They were troubling the church in order to accomplish their own personal agenda. And to kind of combat these charges, Paul gives us this incredible biographical statement here in these few verses that we're going to be looking at today. In fact, down in verse 20, he even says this. He says, in what I am writing you before God, I do not lie. It's like Paul's picturing a court scene here, and he is a witness on the witness stand himself, and he says, you know what? I just, I just want you to know I'm a, what I'm about to say to you is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And so what I want us to do today is to look at this statement of defense. And I want to draw from it for our own practical purposes four very important reflections that Paul makes about the gospel itself and what these reflections still mean to us today. The first reflection is simply this. The gospel must be revealed in order to be understood. The gospel must be revealed in order to be understood. Paul says, you want me to help you understand this business about the gospel? The first thing is that I would remind you of is if God doesn't show up and reveal to you 
what what you need to be what needs to be revealed to you you're never going to grasp it and you'll it'll never fully impact your life look with me at what it says there in verses 11 and 12 for i would have you know brothers that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel for i did not receive it from any man nor was it was i taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul had some things that he wanted to make very clear here to these churches. And the first thing was that the gospel he preached was not man's gospel. He wanted to make this very, very clear. And in fact, he had already said it earlier. Uh, We talked about this a couple of messages ago. But back in the introduction in chapter 1 and verse 1, We read this, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And here, basically, Paul says the very same thing again, where he he reminding them that the gospel didn't come to him through human channels. he, He didn't get it through another human being. It wasn't something that he himself made up as if the gospel could somehow be a product of human invention. Paul says, I didn't invent it myself. It wasn't something that came to me with my own mind. In fact, we know that Paul didn't somehow make the gospel up out of his own creativity. And the reason why we know this is because Paul was raised on, it wasn't raised on anything that had to do with grace at all. Paul was raised on a scoring system where you try to earn points in favor with God through your good works and through your good religious deeds. It was a scoring system. Whoever scores the most points wins in the end. And you can never know if you've actually scored enough points to win. But, but hopefully, one of these days, when you get to heaven, and when you die, you, you get to heaven, and you'll be able to look at God, and God will look at you, and he'll say, you know what, you scored, but barely enough. I mean, you got by by the skin of your teeth, come, but, 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 but you can come in. Now, there's no assurance in any of that, but yet, that's how the Apostle Paul was raised, and if you're, you're, if we're on, if we're all honest this morning, if we're, if we were the ones who were inventing a gospel in our own human, as human beings, in our own human minds, that's how we would want to, or think, think of it. That's, that, that we would want, that we would think that we could be accepted by God, um, that by, by, um, earning our way or being competitive in that way. We'd make the emphasis all about us, wouldn't we? But as we've learned right here in Galatians, as well as other places in the Bible, the main idea behind the gospel, it's the word grace. And it's all about the grace of God. And grace is not on the radar screen of the Apostle Paul one bit in his younger days. It is totally foreign to his way of thinking. So Paul says the gospel was not the product of my own invention, but he also says that he didn't receive it through any church tradition either. That it wasn't something that was handed down to him through the leaders of the church. Just a few verses later, Paul is going to testify that he hadn't been around the Jerusalem apostles for very long. 
he barely even knew them, and he certainly hadn't been around them long enough to, be, to, to get an understanding of the gospel from them. Paul says, you know what, I didn't make this up. I didn't receive it as if it was handed down to me. He, he says, I didn't learn the gospel through personal instruction, kind of like what he did when he sat at the feet of his teacher Gamaliel and studied rabbinic traditions and all of the law in his younger age. That's not what Paul says is the reason why he learned the gospel, or that's not how he learned the gospel. Paul wants to make it very clear, I didn't invent this, the church fathers didn't transfer this to me, I didn't learn it as a result of human instructions. Instead, Paul says, the gospel came to me by divine revelation. It was something that I received directly from the Lord. In fact, his exact word that he uses there is the word revelation. And that's exactly what Paul experienced, that dramatic encounter with the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. He was on his way to Damascus in Syria in order to round up believers. That was his custom. He was persecuting the church and the Lord revealed himself to him. Paul wasn't seeking the Lord. He he wasn't um, looking to find the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is how he got the gospel. Friends, Paul had already known some facts about the gospel. He had known some facts uh, about the gospel. because, and, And I know this because he was out trying to wipe the church out. He was trying to wipe the gospel out. But... Can I just say this morning that you can know some facts and figures about the gospel, but that doesn't necessarily save you or anyone else. Having some facts about the gospel is great. It is a great way to start. And there are some important things that we really need to comprehend about the gospel in order to be saved. But that is not going to save you by itself unless God shows up and does the work. You know, one of the clearest explanations that I've ever heard about the gospel in my life came from an Orthodox Jewish rabbinic professor uh, in a Hebrew university. He gave the most clear, biblical, articulate explanation of the gospel that I've ever heard. And once he got finished, he paused for about two seconds and he said, but I don't believe it one bit. Listen, he had the facts down cold, but the Lord had not showed up and changed his life. And this is what Paul is saying and making very clear here. Man alone cannot reveal the gospel. The church by itself cannot reveal the gospel. Studying the scriptures by itself cannot reveal the gospel. And do you know why? Because the human heart is naturally hardened to the gospel. Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, the natural person, the unsaved person, the unredeemed person, the person who is apart from Jesus Christ, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The gospel must be revealed in order to be understood. But then secondly, that leads to another reflection that Paul makes about the gospel. Namely, the gospel is for really bad people. The gospel is for really bad people. And can I just say, you know what? We're all really bad people. 
Now, I feel like I needed to say that here this morning, and yet, even as I say that, I know some of you are thinking, come on, Jason, I mean, I'm not a bad person. And to that, I would say that you might do some good things, but still, by your very nature, you are a bad person in the eyes of God, and you need to understand that. The Bible uses the language of depravity. In fact, the Bible would say that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It's so wicked that you can't even fully comprehend it yourself. And you know, Paul is going to use his own life as an example of this in this very passage beginning in verse 13. And he's going to say, you know what, if you want an example of this, just look at my own checkered life. And he is going to do this in order to support what he has said about the fact that he received the gospel as a revelation from God. He's trying to make this point. If God hadn't showed up in my life, I never would have been saved because I was too bad to even know that I needed to be saved. Look at what he says beginning in verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now, most people who even slightly are aware of the Apostle Paul and his background know that Paul was a pretty bad dude. I mean... They would have been right in saying that because Paul is what we might call a domestic terrorist. He was a fanatic for the law. He was all in with everything that had to do about Judaism. The law, the temple, the temple ceremonies, the feasts. And the last thing that he wanted was for Judaism, the Judaism Judaism of his day, to be absorbed into the large and growing Gentile world around it. And so... He made it his mission in life to preserve, protect, and defend the law of Moses and the law of God. And he became this persecutor of the church, this radical zealot. Now, we know a lot about Paul from his own testimony. His father was a Pharisee. He was part of this super elite group of Jews. He had been schooled in rabbinic Judaism from the time that he was five or six years old. As a teenager, he was sent off to Jerusalem around the age of 14, where, the, where he studied under one of the greatest teachers of his day, a guy by the name of Gamaliel. Later on, he would become a Pharisee himself. He was like the cream of the crop. Slowly but surely, he was transformed into this radical zealot. He was a persecutor of Christians, which is how he first introduces himself in the book of Acts, or how we're first introduced to him, rather, in the book of Acts, where he is casting his vote in favor of the death of a righteous man named Stephen, who has just given testimony about God in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin. From there, it only got worse. The Bible says in Acts chapter 8 and verse 3 that Saul, which was his name before he became Paul, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. It's in the very next chapter, uh, Acts chapter 9 and verse 1, that Paul wa- that it says that Paul uh, Saul was still breathing threats and murder 
against the disciples of the Lord. So can we all just agree here today that Saul was a really bad man. And his life is a critical reminder to us of who it is that the gospel is for. The gospel is for really bad people. And let's be honest, we're all bad people. Now, we might not think of ourselves as really bad people in terms of our actions, and that's usually because we compare ourselves with the worst of the worst. And if we're not careful, we can walk around thinking, you know what, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good gal. But again, that's because we compare ourselves with the wrong standard. The standard that you and I are to compare ourselves to is the perfect holiness of Almighty God. And when you and I do that, I wonder, how is that working out for you? Not too good, right? We need to compare ourselves to the right standard, not the wrong standard, but... When we do that, it is easy to understand what the Bible would say in in places like Romans chapter 3. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Notice that nobody is excluded from that list there. The Apostle Paul's point in Romans chapter 3 is that he is not the only bad man around. Because we're all bad dudes when we compare ourselves to the holiness of God, which is what it takes to get to heaven. Only righteous people get to heaven and we're not righteous, which means that we have a problem, right? And for even the best people, the testimony of Isaiah chapter 64 is very clear. We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Friends, that is the best of us. Our best deeds are like filthy, rotten, polluted rags in the presence of a holy God. Heard a story recently of a pastor who had a relative who was very hostile towards the gospel. Well, they, they were at a family gathering one time and this relative came up to him and she was very bold. She didn't care about the fact that he was a pastor. She came up and she said, you know what? I've just come to believe that everybody that's associated in the church is just associated with a pit of vipers. All the church is as an associated pit of vipers. Well, this pastor looks at his relative and he says, okay, do you think that the people outside of the church are are any better than the people inside of the church? And she says, well, no, I really don't. He says, well, here's the thing. To be quite honest, I really don't disagree with you. We're all just a bunch of snakes in the eyes of God. But here's the good news. We've got room for one more if you'd like to slither in on Sunday morning. (laughs) Listen, all uh, of the other world religions will tell you that you have to, uh, what it takes, that you have what it takes in order to uh, live better and better. That, That if you just do enough good works, you can earn favor with God. But Christianity teaches just the opposite of that. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is for bad people, and we're all bad people. Now, what this means, of course, is that if any of us is going to get saved, God is going to have to do it. The Apostle Paul saw salvation as a miracle. And can I just say that there is no way that that murderous, mean-spirited zealot was ever going to change his mind about the cross. A cross that he was totally convinced of bore a false Messiah. He was never going to change his mind about that. And this is the point that then brings us to point number three. And reflection number three here about the gospel, and that is that the gospel is rooted in the sovereign grace of God. The gospel is rooted in the sovereign grace of God. What, what's the central word that Paul uses in the letter to the Galatians? It's the word grace, right? In fact, it's because we are all bad people that we desperately need the grace of God, which is why we love that uh, well-known song, um, one of the most well-known songs of all Christianity. It's amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. You see, we're desperate for the grace of God because... It's our only hope to be saved. I mean, just think about the Apostle Paul. How many people do you think had, had just totally written him off like, Paul, he, there ain't no way that that guy's ever going to be saved. And I wonder, have you ever written anybody off like that before? You know what? He's just too far gone. That's one guy that's never going to be saved. That's one lady who's never going to be saved. Well, You better be very careful about saying who God can and cannot save. God has the power to save. We don't have the power to save anybody. But thank God we serve a God who is in the saving business. And you know what? If it were up to Paul and his ability to bring anything good to the situation in order to be saved, he never would have been saved. But salvation isn't based on what we do. Even when we do good things, those things cannot save us. No, salvation is all about grace. And that is clearly reflected in Paul's words here in what he says in verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Now, let me just stop there for just a moment. I believe that the conversion of this man, Saul of Tarshish, is the most strong evidence of the truthfulness of Christianity that there is. I mean, it's just miraculous that this guy ever was saved. We've read all about these negative things about this man this morning, but we get to verse 15 and we are confronted with one of the great words in all of the Bible. And what is that word? It's the word but. There's all of this junk. There are all of these bad things. But. Paul is painting a before and after picture. Here's who I was. And here is what God did. All of the bad stuff that Paul talked about. He associated with himself. But when he starts talking about salvation. He turns the attention from himself. And on to God. Here's who I was. Here's what God did. 
God set me apart. God called me by his grace. God was pleased to reveal his son to me. God, God, God. Salvation is all about God. If you don't believe me, just look at what Paul says in his own words, friends. He says that salvation, his salvation and his calling were, and can we just say this, prenatal. Prenatal. That God called him, God chose him, he set him apart before he was even born. Paul, or rather God did all the work. All he needed to do was to respond. It's all about grace. Paul wasn't trying to find God's mercy. God's mercy came looking for Paul. Paul wasn't looking to be saved. He thought he already was saved. He thought he was doing God's work, racking up points uh, through. uh, He thought that salvation was all about this scoring system. And so that's why he was going around arresting Christians, putting them in prison because he thought he was doing God's work. Grace totally was foreign to him. And the point that Paul is making is that nobody even chooses to follow Jesus unless and until God first shows up and reveals the gospel to them. Friends, listen, it is okay to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. I did decide to follow Jesus, but I need to understand that I didn't decide to follow Jesus until Jesus first showed up and called me to himself. Nobody has the power to save themselves. You, you didn't just wake up one morning and say, you know what? I'm lost. I need to give my life to Jesus today. No, first God had to do his work in your heart because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. A lot of you are familiar with the story of Lazarus. You know that Lazarus was dead and he came out of that tomb. But Lazarus didn't come out of that tomb by his own choice. Lazarus came out of that tomb because the person who would become the risen Savior came to the tomb first and shouted out his name out loud. Lazarus, come out. Because of that shout, because of that command from the living God himself, Lazarus came back to life again. And the same thing has to happen to you and me, which is why there is this urgency. The Bible says that when you hear the call of God, when you feel the tug of the Spirit of God and the conviction of God in your life, don't harden your heart, but respond. Respond. The Bible says, now is the time of salvation. And this is what happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. The same thing that happened to Lazarus in the tomb physically is exactly the same thing that happened to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus spiritually. He was just as dead spiritually as Lazarus was dead physically. And it took the living Savior to show up in order to call him to himself. Because the gospel isn't rooted in human achievement. The gospel is rooted in the sovereign grace of God. And so we've seen that the gospel must be revealed in order to be understood. And the gospel is for really bad people. And the gospel is rooted in the sovereign grace of God. But then finally, I want us to look at the product of the gospel. What does the gospel do in our lives? Well, the gospel transforms sinners into servants. It transforms sinners into servants. The gospel impacts a person's life and changes them. 
let me tell you, it's not going to happen overnight. Discipleship is a process. It is a marathon, not a sprint. You you don't become mature as a Christian in one day. There will be lingering bad habits and there will be lingering worldly behaviors. But when a person gets saved, what changes drastically in them is their desire. Their heart changes. You might not do everything right, but you want to do everything right. You may not please God with every part of your life, but you long to please God with every part of your life. Before you used to live in sin and you loved it. But now you, link, you, you, you lapse into sin and you loathe it. You hate it when you do it. Not everything immediately changes when you give your life to Christ based on his call. But what does change is the desire. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so what salvation does is it takes us from being self-serving sinners to being God-honoring servants. And Paul reflects that right here in verse 16 and following. He says that God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That was God's purpose For Paul's life. And then he goes on and he gives some details here. About his early Christian life. Now uh, we we, we don't have a lot of time to really dig into this deeply this morning. And so I'm just going to read it to us. But I just want to remind you that he is defending himself against these charges. That he's not a real apostle. And that he got this information all from the, the Jerusalem apostles. And he's just twisting it. Well here's what he says at the end of verse 16 and following. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, also known as Peter, and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, and what I, in what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the region of Syria and Sicily. Sicilia. Now, let me just stop there for a second because what we just read are five statements about the first 10 years of Paul's ministry. And wouldn't you just love to have a little bit more detail about what that would have looked like? But what Paul is trying to do here is he's trying to show us the first 10 years of his ministry and that he wasn't even around the other apostles during that time. And so there is no way that he could have gotten the gospel from them and then somehow twisted it for his own agenda as these false teachers were claiming. That's why Paul gives this timeline in order to to show that there is no way that he could have gotten the gospel from the Jerusalem apostles because he he didn't even go to Jerusalem until he uh, had been saved for like three years. And when he did go, he was only there for 15 days, hardly enough time to fully grasp what it was that they were teaching. And as far as we know, he didn't go back to Jerusalem until uh, seven or eight years after that first visit. 
Now, all of these things are great details, uh, and, and I want us to notice this, though, that when God called Paul to be saved, he also called Paul to serve. No longer was he to live his life in order to gratify his own desires. All of what he had has now changed. God has done a work in his heart so that Paul would no longer be self-centered, but that he would be totally Christ-centered. And in fact, that change was so obvious that everybody else around noticed it. And I want you to see what he says here himself in verse 22 and following. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing of, uh, they were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Friends, there was a time when these people were running from this guy and thinking bad thoughts. And now they are praising God for only what the grace of God could do in depraved, lost human life. Now, here's what I want to ask us here today. Everyone in the house, everyone online, this is what I want to ask you to consider. Has that kind of change happened to you? Has that transformation, that change happened in your life? It's not going to be exactly the same as the Apostle Paul, but it will be similar. Here's how I was before I met the Lord. Here's how the Lord showed up in my life. Here's how the Lord revealed himself to me and what he revealed about my own life. And here is how I responded to the call of God. Have you had a moment like that before in your life where where God showed up in your life out of nowhere, confronted your sin, called you to himself in order to save you and to give you a purpose in life of serving him now and for all of eternity? Has the whole course of your life been radically redirected so that when others look at your life, they say, you know what, that's just not the same person that, that they used to be. If that hasn't happened in your life before. Well, today it can, that you respond to Christ's call on your life by seeking after him and by faithfully following him. Friends, the message of Paul is one that is crystal clear to us. The gospel is good news that is rooted in grace, revealed by the sovereignty of God, It is for bad people in dark places so that sinners can become servants and honor God with purpose and meaning as long as they live this life. And the good news this morning is that if God can do that in the life of a man like Paul, God can surely do that in you and me as well. Because this is the power of the gospel. Let's pray.